Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Trump's budget is out or is about to come out. We know the broad outline of it. And it's going to do just extraordinary damage to red state America, by and large to working class white people, the people who voted for Donald Trump. It's going to do just extraordinary damage to them. And he wants to cut $1.1 trillion. This is over a 10-year period. $1.1 trillion to Medicaid. And Medicaid is the uh, health care program that, in those states that have done Medicaid expansion, that is available to the working poor. Medicaid is, in that context, kind of a subsidy for McDonald's and Walmart and all those other companies that pay really, really low wages. Because if you make so little that you qualify for Medicaid, then uh, you work for basically Trump's America. And, you know, the question that I'm asking, actually, let me get right to this. Eugene Robinson of the Washington Post over the weekend wrote that essentially Trump's supporters are the stupidest, most gullible people on earth. Right. He said, quote, he apparently believes his loyal supporters are the dumbest, most gullible people on earth. We'll see if he's right. And then he goes through the list of, you know, lies Trump has told and promises that he's broken. Mexico is not paying for the wall. The trade deficit has gone up. The tax cut for working people didn't happen. Korea hasn't denuclearized. He hasn't replaced the Affordable Care Act with something better. No infrastructure, no drain the swamp. But when you look at this budget, $327 billion being cut from anti-poverty programs. These are programs that are keeping a lot of rural America alive. 
Now, yeah, they may be big among, you know, African-Americans in the inner cities, which is pretty much all Republicans want to talk about when they're talking about these programs. But the fact of the matter is more white people are on food stamps than black people or Hispanic people. More white people are taking discounted housing. More white people. I mean, you know, it's just he wants to cut two hundred and seven billion dollars out of federally guaranteed student loan programs. He wants to cut two hundred billion dollars out of the federal retirement programs. I mean, the Democrats have said this, this thing is dead on arrival. It's going to lock in trillion-dollar-a-year budgets forever. Well, at least until there's a Democratic president. And then, of course, the two Santa Claus theory kicks in, and the Republicans all start screaming about, oh, my God, it's a budget deficit. We can't have this. you got to quick cut Social Security, even though that has nothing to do with the budget. You know, Harry Truman called this out years ago. Back in uh, 1948, it was October 13th, in fact, 1948, in St. Paul, Minnesota, Harry Truman was running for president. The election was three weeks later. And in St. Paul, Minnesota, Harry Truman had this to say about the GOP. I've been studying the Republican Party for over 12 years at close hand in the capital of the United States. And by this time, I have discovered where the Republicans stand on most of the major issues. Since they won't tell you themselves, I'm going to tell you. They approve the American farmer, but they're willing to help him go broke. They stand four square for the American home, but not for housing. They are strong for labor, but they are stronger for restricting labor's rights. They favor a minimum wage. The smaller the minimum, the better. They endorse educational opportunity for all but they won't spend money for teachers or for schools. They think modern medical care and hospitals are fine for people who can afford them. They approve of Social Security benefits, so much so that they took them away from almost a million people. So there you go, Harry Truman. What did he say? They say, I'm giving them hell. Actually, I tell the truth and they think it's hell. And that's exactly what he did. But I mean, the bigger point, that was 1948. I was not even alive in 1948. Nods are you weren't either. And Harry Truman had the number of the Republican Party. And here we are today. And it's the exact same scam. They're still running this scam. They are the party of the rich and powerful pretending to be the party of the working person. Richard Nixon and Pat Buchanan basically laid out the campaign strategy that Donald Trump is using. I mean, just very straightforward. In fact, there's a piece by uh, Lawrence Jerdom about this in today's Washington Post, how Richard Nixon charted the path for Donald Trump's re-election. And it goes back to Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan was Richard Nixon's speechwriter. And Nixon ran on the platform of, quote, putting and keeping America first. That was Nixon's slogan. This was in 1992. And his uh, themes were construction of the wall and the Mexican border, a renegotiation of our trade deals and demanding that our allies take greater responsibility for their own defense. Sound familiar? This was what Pat Buchanan laid out for Richard Nixon. And then again in, in uh, 72, and Buchanan said, you know, label the Democrats as socialists. Now in 72, Nixon was running against George McGovern. And Buchanan wrote a memo saying, we're going to have a real problem with George McGovern. He is, quote, a candid, honest, straightforward citizen politician. He was also a war hero 
flew 30 some odd bombing missions and was shot down and rescued his crew and the whole thing. George McGovern. And so Buchanan, this is from today's Washington Post, Buchanan crafted a plan to undermine McGovern's campaign by portraying him as both an extremist and as a pet of the national liberal establishment. Buchanan told Nixon, quote, you need to scare the hell out of the American people about George McGovern and convince them that his policies would be an utter disaster for the country. Doesn't matter if it's true or not. Call him a socialist. Well, you know, it worked in 72. Nixon beat George McGovern quite badly. Pat Buchanan's playbook actually works. So the question is, will it work again? Because now we've had, you know, more than 50 years to look at these Republican strategies and realize that they're crazy, they're bunk, they're BS, they, they're not true. So, you know, is it still going to work? You know, Harry Truman won re-election in 48, basically saying these things. Although he lost in 52 to Dwight Eisenhower. But Dwight Eisenhower wasn't using Pat Buchanan's playbook. Dwight Eisenhower was also kind of running as a Democrat. In fact, right up until just, you know, the year before the election, they didn't know if Eisenhower was going to be a Democrat or Republican. He was just a war hero. And he ran on a campaign of ending the Korean War. He ran on a peace platform. He ran on the Tulsi Gabbard platform. So the question, is it true? Do you think it's absolutely true that Trump supporters are so stupid that they're going to buy into it this time? Or is it just that they're misinformed? Or what percentage of them are like just really stupid people or really bigoted people versus the people who are, you know, really decent people. And I know a few of them who voted for Trump. I'm not sure they'd vote for him again, but, you know, they voted for him once. How many of those people who actually are thoughtful who might have voted for Trump based on the lies that he told about what he'd do will not vote for him again? What do you think? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Right now on the line with us is our old buddy, Greg Pallast, the investigative journalist, author, filmmaker, his most recent, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. GregPallast.com is the website. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Pallast, just like I'm Tom underscore Hartman. Greg, welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you again, Tom. So recap for us exactly where we're at with regard to Venezuela. Well, where we're at is there's a guy named Juan Guaido who announced himself as president, 35-year-old white guy. This is a nation made up of mostly mestizo, dark people. He's announced himself as president, never ran for president. It was after a call from Donald Trump saying, you call yourself the president, and I'll call you the president. And that's how now Trump and his oily allies are literally telling Venezuela who their president is. The guy, he didn't even run. The only person who's ever said he's run for office is some woman named Kirsten Gillibrand. I don't know who she is, but she said that we have to recognize Juan Guaido, as president because he was legitimately elected. Senator Gillibrand, when was that election? It never was held. So we have the U.S. imposing a president. Why? Well, underneath Venezuela is the largest reserve of oil on the planet. Go to the OPEC site, you'll see it it has reserves that are about four times that of Saudi Arabia. And what's going on here? So we've talked before. Let's start out about that oil. This is a special and unique kind of oil. oil. Right? Yes. Well, first of all, it's a very heavy oil, super heavy oil, and it's the number one customer for Venezuela are the refineries on the Gulf Coast of Texas owned by, guess who? Coke Industries. So Venezuela's number one customer are the Brothers Coke. And normally you get a discount for gunky, horrible, heavy oil, 
that has to be sold cheap. The Canadians knock off 30% off the price of the oil because it's so gunky from their heavy tar sand. Well, the Cokes are captive customers. Hugo Chavez, who I knew, and I know the current president, too, said, well, look, we know their captive customers are going to stick it to them. They charge a massive premium to the Cokes for their oil. The Cokes don't like that. So they have two choices, either complete the XL pipeline, which brings down the Canadian junk to the Gulf. Now, hang on just a second. Let me just back up a little bit. My understanding yeah. is that the reason why all this is happening, everything you're describing, is because it takes a completely different kind of refinery to turn this gunky, thick, heavy oil into gasoline and diesel fuel and other things from a normal refinery. And the only yeah. one of those kind of special kind of refineries for that special kind of oil, which can then only process that special kind of oil, is the one that's owned by Coke Industries on the coast, right? That's correct. In other words, Coke Industries has refineries in the middle of Texas oil fields. They can't use Texas oil because it's not dirty enough, heavy enough, filthy enough, believe it or not, for the Coke Industries refinery. Right. So they're stuck with Venezuela, and they don't like being stuck with the price that's demanded of Venezuela. So they need some regime change going on here. So the U.S. government has embargoed Venezuela. That is, Trump has embargoed Venezuela. Which is um, devastating they, their economy. Devastating. They can't get food. They can't get medicine. It's absolute devastation. And by the way, then they say, oh, look how incompetent the government is. People can't eat. And they had this phony thing where Marco Rubio and Trump shipped boxes of food for like 2,000 people to the Brazilian border, and the government of Venezuela said, we don't need your charity. We're a rich nation. Pay us for our oil. Right now, the Cokes are holding some of the money from Venezuela that they're supposed to pay for the oil. Some of it went is under the control of the U.S. Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, who's made sure that the number one creditor of Venezuela, of Venezuela's American oil arm, which is called Citgo, you've seen those stations, yep. the number one creditor is Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs, where Steve Mnuchin hails from, they're getting a chunk of the money. The Cokes are, are doing very well by this process of stealing Venezuela's money. In the meantime, the people are starving. And that's what's happening. It's a choking embargo, and you have other oily nations who are joining in to give Trump. Normally, you know, Trump is isolated in foreign affairs. So why are nations like Canada and the British government joining in on this attack. Well, isn't the largest or second largest source of revenue for Canada's economy oil? Yes. So they are in direct competition with Venezuela. Here's one of the things I want that we shouldn't forget. One of the charges against the current elected president, not the Trump chosen president, but the elected president, right, Maduro. Maduro is that he's corrupt, his government is corrupt, and the oil money has been stolen. Yeah, it's been stolen, but by the Kochs, by Mnuchin, by Goldman Sachs, etc. This is a pretty funny claim by, for example, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, is right now under investigation for covering up massive bribes to Muammar Gaddafi for bribing that government for its oil in Libya. Right, back in the day. And, and the U.K. government also was paying bribes, about $200 million to the Saudis, because they could be bribed, and the right. government had to quash that investigation under national security grounds. In the U.S., the Minerals and Mining Services was known as a cesspool of corruption, trading sex and goodies and Super Bowl tickets for U.S. oil resources. That's in the U.S. Right. Uh, Exxon, that American uh, flag-waving company, Exxon Mobil, was part of a group of oil companies that paid a $160 million bribe to the president of Kazakhstan, 
And by the way, we're not worried about those dictators like Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, the, the Saudi royals who are just dictators in bathrobes. We don't worry about democracy in those nations, do we? And by the way, an Exxon official did get three years in prison for that bribery, but no one else. It goes on and on. And what I found from oil company executives in the years that I've been covering Venezuela, I did it first for The Guardian and BBC, and I was down in Venezuela many times, met with Chavez, with Maduro, with the opposition, too. And what oil company executives were telling me, the frustration with Venezuela, is that they couldn't be bribed. Chavez was unbribable. So a question. Here's a uh, hyper-simplistic understanding of the situation. And let me lay that out, and you can tell me if I've got right or wrong. And if I have it right, then I have a question based on it. It sounds to me like what you're saying is the Koch brothers own a refinery that can basically only refine this heavy, heavy oil that comes from either Venezuela or Canada. And the Keystone XL pipeline is an effort to get that Canadian tar sands oil down to the Koch Brothers refinery, but it has not yet been completed. So basically, the only place they can get the oil to make their money and leave the waste products in Texas and Louisiana is from Venezuela. Am I right so far? Okay, step two. So then the Koch Brothers start leaning on the Trump administration and the Republican Party and, you know, one of their toadies, Marco Rubio, to make life absolutely miserable for the Venezuelans because the Venezuelans are charging them a premium for this oil and in the process trying to take down the government because the new guy, you know, this white guy that you described who has claimed he's president, even though he's just like the Speaker of the House, of the equivalent of Speaker of the House, has yeah. said, already said, that he's willing to bring the American oil companies in. He's willing to basically privatize some of Venezuela's oil and sell that oil to the Coke refinery back at lower prices. Am I right so far? You are right so far. Let me add one other thing. The British government last year asked the Venezuelan government to give British Petroleum, the oil fields that had been controlled by the French Total. Right. They didn't worry about the dictatorship or democracy or corruption. They wanted those oil fields. The minute the Venezuelan government said, no, you can't have those fields, British Petroleum, we're keeping it for Venezuelans, suddenly they are dictators, and the British government has withheld one and a half billion dollars in gold, solid gold, kept in the basement of the British exchequer that belongs to Venezuela, that money could feed a lot of people. Oh, that's their reserves. Yeah, so here's my question. If everything that I described is accurate, and Maduro is fighting for his life now because he took on these oligarchs, why doesn't he just drop the price of his oil to the Coke refineries down to, you know, international spot prices? He'll still be able to have a profit, sell the oil, and basically say, you guys back off, stop, you know, trying to foment a revolution against me, and I'll sell you the oil at reasonable prices. Well, what you're saying, yeah, I mean, there's, should he respond to a gun to his head? And the answer is probably yes. I'm going to tell you something. I know Maduro. I knew Chavez. Chavez, as he said, was a great chess player. He knew how to push just so far and no further. For example, he annoyed the oil companies and drove out Exxon by putting a 17% tax on Venezuelan oil. By the way, that's about what Sarah Palin tax the uh, oil companies in Alaska. So he knew he could go so far and no further. For all his rhetoric, he did not, he didn't push further than than politics could happen. Maduro is a hardliner and not much of a chess player. And, you know, the truth is when the British government, British Petroleum, comes to you and says, we would like your oil, you're supposed to say, yes, sir, and just bargain the terms. You know, the guy was inflexible and now... You know, if you don't cuddle up to British Petroleum, you don't cuddle up to Exxon, 
you know, you don't cuddle up to these uh, guys Coke Industries. Oil. And the Coke brothers, baby, you've taken on some pretty heavy-duty cats. And unfortunately, it's not just Maduro. It's people, according to the U.N. rapporteur, and that's the official investigator from the U.N., he says it's a medieval siege, it's a war crime because they are using starvation to obtain oil. That's the U.N.'s official reporter. So who is the they who is using starvation to obtain oil, according to the U.N.? BP, the U.S., and it's all companies. Exxon wants to get back in and wants those fields back. Total wants back into France, et cetera. Amazing. Greg, we're out of time, but it's, it's, it's a grim story that everybody needs to know about. There's a great summary of it all, along with a lot of good videos over at gregpalace.com, too. And Greg's movie, his most recent uh, book and movie, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, which he recently updated. You can check that out. Greg underscore palace is his Twitter handle. Greg, thanks for dropping by. You're very welcome. Great talking with you, my friend. Does your current office chair support you? I mean, if you're lucky, maybe it goes up and down, but can you sit in it for hours before it becomes uncomfortable? You know, I I broke my back skydiving back when I was 20 years old, and finding a good chair has been a lifelong struggle. The X chair has this dynamic variable lumbar support. They call it DVL. The X chair's DVL was designed to adjust to you, and every other part of the chair can be custom adjusted to fit you. That's why the X chair is equally supportive, whether you're 5'2 at 110 or 6'4 at 250. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as 30 bucks a month. Take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. X-Chair's on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair. xchairtom.com. Fair and only slightly unbalanced, Tom Harmon here with you. Boy, you know Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, is really, really roiling things, really making things happen, really boiling the water, really bringing stuff out. When they start singing songs about her, my old friend Jim Turr, T-E-R-R, who is BlueCanyonProductions.com, and a brilliant musician. He's got CDs out and all kinds of stuff. Just sent me a brand new song he just recorded with permission to play it on the air. I'm going to play a little bit of it for you. This is hysterical. Listen to this. This is, this is the setup, and here, here it comes, and you'll figure out what it's all about real quickly. You better shape up and support what's good, or she'll kick your butt like you know that she should. Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez is coming to town. There you go, yes. Fairer wages, single-payer health care. She's working class, so you know she's been there. AOC is coming to town. And then here's the uh, sort of the last half of it here. I She'll think. take I away. Get right over to here. They've tried to tear down her dancing, her boyfriend, and her debts. Don't think you'll get her that easily, or you'll be sorry you tried. I'll bet. So. Have some respect, give her a hearing, she's the voice of reason that some have been fearing. Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez is the new kid in town. There you go, Jim Turr, BlueCanyonProductions.com. Oh, what a hoot, you know. <laughs> there, there is so much great creative talent out there. Ba-da-ba-ba.
On the line with us now is Professor Richard Wolf. Dr. Wolf is economist and co-founder of Democracy at Work. Democracyatwork.info is the website. His most recent book, Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, essays on the bull economic meltdown, and you can tweet him at Prof. Wolf with two Fs. Dr. Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. I would love to get your thoughts on a conversation that I had last week with Steve Keen, an economist who you may be familiar with. Um, yes. I've known Steve for many years. And he pointed out how Japan, some more than 20, 20 years ago, basically ended recessions by going into an economy that no longer had boom and bust cycles by virtue of regulation through their central bank. So it was just kind of a couple of decades of basically sluggish growth. But the Japanese people didn't object so much to that because they still have a strong social safety net and all that kind of stuff, you know, free health care and all that. And he was speculating that given uh, Jay Powell's, he stopped raising interest rates and he's kind of continuing. And now I see these two articles in the Financial Times. Will the e, One's headline, will the ECB, the European Central Bank, ever be able to abandon monetary stimulus? And the other is ECB unveils fresh bank stimulus amid rising eurozone gloom, which leads me to wonder if Steve Keen's analysis could even apply to the eurozone. What are your thoughts on that and what Japan did, how that might apply to us? They did this after their debt-to-GDP ratio exceeded 200%. Your thoughts, please. Well, I think that this is a basic problem of capitalism, and it really afflicts the United States every bit as much as Japan, if not more so. Every employer is always looking for ways to save on labor costs whether it's by hiring immigrants rather than local people, whether it's replacing people with machines through automation, whether it's making workers work harder and faster so he can do with fewer of them, whatever it is, it's an endless struggle. And the profitability of an enterprise depends on how well he does it. But here's the irony, or if you like, the contradiction. The less money you put in the hands of the mass of workers who are employees, the less, of course, they can spend. And the irony is, you as a capitalist employer not only have to make profit by keeping your wage bill down, but you also have to sell the stuff that you hired the workers to help you produce. And if you deprive the mass of people of decent incomes, well, they can't buy it back from you. And that can be as debilitating to your profits as having paid them better wages in the first place. No capitalism I'm aware of has ever figured out out how to resolve that contradiction. For a while, you can do it by having a kind of mass middle class type of capitalism. And we had that in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But as you proliferate a more and more unequal economic system, as we have in the last 30 years, more and more money is in the hands of a fewer portion of our population. They don't spend it the way other people who are less well endowed with money could do. And so there you have the problem. You have squeezed the mass of people. They can't buy the stuff you're producing. And that then grinds your economy down. What the Japanese did is face that and use the government to try to fix that situation by redistributing wealth, by having a very generous public uh, service system, etc., etc. The United States seems hell-bent 
to not go in that direction. The people at the top don't want to give up even a portion of all that they have had redistributed to them in the last 30 years. So we seem to be heading down a path where we're unwilling to do the kinds of things the Japanese doing, now apparently unwilling to do even what the Europeans are doing faced with this situation. And my guess is we're going to be very, very sorry that we're taking that extreme uh, conservative path. So by... By maintaining low interest rates right now, the Fed is, in effect, encouraging more and more debt, encouraging people, you know, stimulating the economy by encouraging people to borrow in order to buy things. And the European Central Bank looks like it's doing the same thing. This is something that is eventually going to bite us in the butt. I think Steve pointed out that the private debt, even in Japan, was like over 200% of GDP, and they got it down to 160% of GDP by just kind of basically slowing down the economy, but not throwing it into reverse through the central bank. So it sounds to me like you're suggesting that our problems are so much deeper than Japan's because we don't have a strong social safety net and we don't have high minimum wages like Japan does, heavy levels of the equivalent of unionization, that therefore a crash is inevitable here and it'll be a crash that's driven by debt. Am I getting that right? Yes, it's driven by debt and driven by these extremes because we don't allow the social safety net to function here in the way that it does already in Europe. I mean, just to give you a simple example, Europe has very high unemployment. So how do they survive? Well, when they go get to be unemployed, they still maintain their health insurance because it's not linked to their job. It's a national service available to everybody who's in France, everybody who's a French citizen. So to lose your job does not immediately plunge you into anxiety or deprivation when it comes to your health care. The same is applicable to school fees, even at higher levels of education. All of these kinds of programs have been eviscerated in the United States, if not eliminated altogether. So here, the inequality produces the kind of extreme economic tension that is you can feel across our country. It, look, it is doing it in Europe, too, because despite the fact that they have a social safety net, the extremes of inequality there are pinching their people. And part of the reason the European Central Bank is doing what it's doing is directly connected to the Yellow Vest movement in France, where you've now had three or four months of weekly demonstrations across the country where the basic demand is we can't tolerate the level of inequality that this economy has brought us to. Yeah, thus neoliberalism. Thank you so much for your insights into this. It just makes so much sense. Professor Richard Wolf, the economist and co-founder of Democracy at Work, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf with two fs.com, and you can tweet him at profwolf. Uh, Professor Wolf, thank you so much for dropping by today. Glad to do it and have a good week, Tom. Thanks, and I look forward to our next conversation. Dave in Grafford, Texas. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind? Uh, I experiment with bumper stickers. Mm -hmm. It's been about 14 years since I had a really successful one, and I have one now that people are really liking, so I just thought I'd tell you about it. Okay. It's hard to um, argue with, no matter which side you're on, but it has a strong message, and that is greedy people suck. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I remember either that slogan or something very much like that from the 60s, but, you know, where occasionally you see a car with like 20 bumper stickers, that one and the kind of multi-religious symbol one, you know, 
that spelled out something. Yeah, I think it spelled that, out peace or whatever. I've seen the mean people suck before. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you're right. I've seen that's the one I've seen. But, so greedy right people right now, suck. it's a real political message that they can't argue with. Yeah, greedy people yeah. suck. Yeah, and if you wanted to make it literal, you could say greedy people suck up the wealth. Well, that's too long for a bumper sticker yeah. in my experience, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, I get it. That's a good one. Dave, uh, you have a website where you sell your bumper stickers? No, I just give them away. I've got about 100 of those if you'd like some. That's great. Yeah, uh, no, I'm good. I, I, I'm not a bumper sticker user, but I think that's that's great that you're doing it. Dave, thank you so much for the call and for sharing your idea with us. Donald in uh, Tascadero, California, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Donald, what's on your mind today? I'm doing fine. I'm calling from Car Crazy, California with an idea for a bumper sticker. Okay. And said, would you buy a used car from Donald? <laughs> Would you, would you buy a used university from him? Would you buy a, yeah, well, a used too, vodka? But, you know, you know. Car crazy California, they, that's all we think about our cars. So would you buy one from him? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one, Donald. Uh, thank you very much for that. Paul in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, what's up? Well, I think it's a good idea for the Democrats not to go on Fox because they're just going to ask you, hey, when are you going to stop beating your wife? Questions. They're not going to be real. Then they're going to give Fox legitimacy. Fox is nothing but GOP TV, and they do not deserve legitimacy. Well, that's the other side of the argument, and that's why I was all in favor of the Democratic Party saying, particularly after Jane Mayer's piece came out last week in The New Yorker, laying out how Fox even knew about Trump's payoffs to Stormy Daniels, which are clear violations of campaign finance laws and an attempt to essentially rig an election, which is what Trump did. Had that come out, there's no doubt in my mind, he would not even have won Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Michigan by, you know, 10, 15,000 votes or whatever, you know, electoral college-wise. And my argument was, and I think, frankly, Tom Perez's argument is we're not going to legitimize Trump's anti-democratic partyism by going on their show. The caller was saying, but you know, there's there's millions of people, and I would say probably 90% of Trump's base who watch Fox News every single day. And by having the debate on you're, Fox, people would catch it. You're not gonna change those people's minds. There's psychological reasons people will stick to their positions and will fight it even especially fight it hard when they're presented with facts contrary to what they believe. They get pleasure from defending their position even harder. Yeah. You may well be so right, Paul. You may well mind. be right. I, you know, I, yeah. I started out saying, don't do it on Fox. Then the caller said, hey, wait a minute, you want to be in front of that audience? And I thought, you know, that's the reason why I go on Fox. And then, you know, you point out, but you're giving legitimacy to Fox, which is one of the reasons why for a couple of years I didn't go on Fox. And, you know, I'm... You're a single person, though. You're not running for president. You're correct. So you going on Fox is a good idea. Maybe you reach somebody. Yeah. But for the Democratic Party to give GOP any credibility at all, is a mistake, in my opinion. Yeah. And let us not forget, Fox News actually went to court to sue to make sure they can make their reporters lie for them. Well, that wasn't Fox News. That was Fox Television, which owns TV Same stations. Difference. And that was the case down in Florida with Steve and... Fired this lady because she got she was upset because they didn't run her story. She and her husband. So she was the on-air talent. He was the writer and, and producer. Yeah. In fact, if you go to, I think they their website is foxrgbhsuit.com if it's still there. To Fox and Friends, August 8, 2012, they actually ran a story 
Okay, go to Media Matters and check this out. That's where I found it. That Barack Obama kidnapped the sitting Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and threatened to kill her if Bill Clinton didn't give a good speech at the Democratic Convention. Really? You can go to Media Matters Archive and look it up. It doesn't get worse. I mean, you always think you've, you've, you've discovered the, the lowest of lows on Fox, and then they come up with another one. Paul, you make a compelling argument, and I've, I've changed my mind again, and I agree with you. Let's see if somebody else can change my mind. You know, I don't usually change my mind, but this is one of those. Mike in Oxford, Florida. Hey, Mike, what's up? I'm impressed generally with the candidates that the Democrats have, but I'm kind of also disappointed in them in one way. I mean, I can understand the traditional thing is to have your platforms or whatever your goals that run for. But the one thing I would like to see somebody be realistic and say, I'm going to put those things on hold, but here is going to be my number one mission. When I get to be president, if I'm elected, I get to go in there and figure out just exactly what Trump has done and how much damage he's done to all the systems, like the State Department, the Justice Department, and so on. And I'm going to try, that will be my number one thing, is to fix any of those things up before I try to do anything else. Right. So what do you think about that? I mean, I think that makes a hell of a lot of sense and uh, should actually be a campaign position because what it does is it highlights the uh, damage that Trump and his administration and putting a coal lobbyist in charge of the EPA, you know, putting an oil lobbyist in charge of our interior department. These things are just, they're crimes, in my opinion. You're absolutely right, Mike, doing extraordinary damage to this country. And the Democrats should be pointing that out. Well, they are pointing it out, but this could be a unified kind of theme. You're listening to Tom Hartman. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one 888 gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one 888 gold Dave in Chicago. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, I just want to do a little rant with you about anti-Semitism. When sure. I was a kid and we had Temple on Saturday, I went to Temple, came out of the Temple for Saturday school and asked my mom, hey, mom, why are we at war? She slammed her brakes on the car and looked back at me and said, we are not at war. Israel is at war. We are Jews and we are Americans. And I just want to say, look, this anti-Semitism thing APAC is pro-israel the, these comments about this anti-jew statements i i, I jewish statements I, I i don't believe them i yeah. i think she was bringing a point in that APAC is influencing um electors through money yeah. and that it is pro-israel which a lot of people equate as pro-Jewish. And the two are Yeah, really I, I think those are the points that Representative Omar was trying to make. I do think that 
some of the things that she tweeted and has said historically could be interpreted as being anti-Semitic and certainly, you know, and, 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 and certainly, obviously, some people did interpret them that way and go after her. Brett Stevens wrote a piece about it in the New York Times. Now, Brett used to work for APAC, so that kind of colors that. But I'm inclined to think that she just didn't grow up with that kind of cultural understanding or perspective that the rest of us did. And therefore, she basically made a mistake and that she, going forward, would probably not be making that mistake and would include the NRA along with a criticism of APAC, for example. Out of an abundance of caution, just knowing that you've got APAC and its partisans, you know, kind of waiting to pounce, essentially, particularly on somebody who's a Muslim and who has power because of their concern that perhaps that person is harboring sentiments, you know, with people who live in Gaza and things like that. Dave, thank you for the call. I, you know, spot on. It's okay. In fact, I think it's entirely appropriate and important to be unafraid about criticizing the policy of any government, including our own. But to equate that with criticizing a people, that's a whole different thing. Chris in Corrales, New Mexico. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind? Thanks for listening to SiriusXM. Thanks for taking my call. Just a quick question for you. Out here in Mexico, I'm seeing commercials with lawyers running saying, if you've used Browned Up and you have cancer, get on board with our lawsuit. Right, right behind it's another advertisement for Roundup for <laughs> sale. Amazing. So tell me what the deal is with that. Are these just ambulance chasers, or is this a real deal? No, it's a real thing. There was a successful lawsuit a few months ago. It's, of course, being challenged, and I'm guessing Monsanto will take it all the way to the Supreme Court. But there was a multi-million dollar settlement given to a man who had worked in the fields for years and years who developed cancer. And the European Union has identified Roundup uh, glyphosate, the, the principal ingredient in Roundup, as a uh, potential carcinogen. And I believe the state of California has as well. So this is a... I can't guarantee that if you sign up for one of these lawsuits, if you have a cancer that they think they can tie back to Roundup, that you will necessarily end up with a multi-million dollar settlement. Supreme Court might blow this whole thing up. And other courts may find differently than that court did. But there is a precedent, Chris. My brother's family on the other side had a son. uh, His son died working in the fields. And the father that owned the farm worked in the fields and blatantly said it was from the chemicals they dealt with in day-to-day life, Roundup and all the fertilizers and things like that. And it's almost... Like, well, you drew the short straw, so too bad. Well, have them, you know, the next time those lawyers run their ad on TV, write down the phone number and pass it along. Well, thank you for your time, Tom. Sure, and usually, by the way, Chris, these personal injury lawsuits, the lawyer only gets paid if they win. If they ask for money up front, that's a whole completely different thing. That, that may even be, you know, a lawyer who's hustling you. But if they're saying, we will do this, because I went through this with my father with mesothelioma. And, you know, we hired a lawyer to try to sue the asbestos companies. And he got what, at the end of the day, was a little over 100000 bucks for my dad, which was not a small amount of money for my father and mother. And, and my mother lived, you know, outlived my dad by about a decade. It was useful to have that money. So the lawyer basically cost nothing. And then when the settlement happened, I think he took half or something, maybe a little less than half. So uh, that's how it works. So good luck, Chris. Good talking to you. David in Oceanside, California. Hey, David, what's up? Hi, Tom. How are you? Good. I have something to say about climate change. And, you know, at first this is going to make you say, want to say, wait, 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 but just let me finish. I don't believe in climate change or that humans are causing it. What I know is that over the last several decades, we've been taking core samples in the ice sheets in Antarctica and Greenland. Looking through the layers, we've been able to go back 
about a million years and see that the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere have had a natural fluctuation of between about 200 and 250 parts per million. Now, in the last 200 years, we've been able to directly sample the atmosphere and see that in the last 200 years, it's gone from about 250 to, I think, we're right at about 400 parts per million now. In that same last 200 years, we've been digging and pumping this stuff out of the ground. It's been buried under the ground for hundreds and hundreds of millions of years and burning trillions and trillions of tons of it into the atmosphere. So... I don't believe it. I've seen the evidence, and the evidence is very compelling. Is what you're challenging the word believe that I should simply say, yeah. instead of saying I believe in climate change, I should simply say climate change is a fact. It's not even something you believe in or don't believe it's in. It's a fact, and we should understand It's a measurable, it. observable and, fact. Right, and my point about this is that there are a lot of people who do believe it, and unfortunately there's a lot of what I call technological snake oil out there. People wanting to push essentially perpetual motion machines. Yeah. You know, I'm an engineer. I understand that this doesn't work. And I believe in alternative energy sources. I think we should explore them. But I think people have to be careful that there's a lot of hucksters out there selling stuff that is unrealistic. Yeah. And um, on the other hand, there's a lot of stuff out there that's extraordinarily realistic that's being continually yeah. minimized and diminished by the fossil fuel billionaires yeah, and I'm the oil solar barons. cells on my roof. Yeah, exactly. Point, solar case in point. Yeah. And I talk about, you know, what's going on in Germany with conservative on this program. And oh, well, we're not Germany, thank God. Right. Really? Really? What is it? Anyhow, David, thank you for the call. An excellent point. Rather than saying, um, I believe in climate change, just say this isn't an issue of belief. It's observable fact. Welcome back. John Marvin here with you. By the way, I just got another fundraising pitch from Donald Trump or from Trump Pence on behalf of the, well, it's from Team Trump 2020. I just retweeted a little piece of it. You can't put the whole thing into a, into a tweet. So I'll read it to you. Fred, because, you know, I'm on his mailing list as Fred Flintstone. Fred, over the past couple of weeks, Democratic presidential candidates have been unveiling their 2020 strategy, and it's terrifying, in all caps underlined. Just look at their main talking points. 90% proposed tax rate. I think it's 70, actually. Wide open borders. There's literally not a single Democrat in America who is calling for wide open borders. The libertarians are. You know, that was Ron Paul's position. Cheap labor. But no Democrats. Full term abortion. In other words, you know, kill a baby as it's being born. Nobody's calling for that. Ripping away Second Amendment rights. <laughs> no. Government-run health care. No. Government-funded health care. And full-blown socialism. This isn't a joke, Fred. This is actually what Democratic presidential candidates are running on in 2020. And we need to know what you think about this, Fred. That's why we've decided to launch the official 2020 Democratic candidate platform survey to see what American voters think about this radical left wing agenda. Please click here to take the official 2020 Democratic candidate platform survey by 1159 p.m. tonight. And of course, when you click on it, it takes you to the fundraising page. But this is what they're doing. Right? This is, I mean, they, I literally all lies. And so, I, you know, I think that we have to say, okay, they're going to call us socialists. To hell with them. I mean, blank them if they can't take a joke. I, it's just, they've been calling us socialists since 1945. 
In fact, they were quite the Liberty League back when FDR was president. In fact, back during Teddy Roosevelt's presidency, they were screaming, and he was a Republican, they were screaming that his trust busting was socialism. Enough already. I don't care what words they use. We are going to stand by our positions. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest ways for hackers to make money. When you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. Using ExpressVPN, I can safely surf even on public Wi-Fi without having my personal data stolen. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom to learn more. Right now on the line with us is presidential candidate Marianne Williamson, the author, lecturer, activist, MarianneForAmerica.com is the website. You can tweet her at Mar Williamson, M-A-R Williamson. She's just an absolutely wonderful and brilliant person and an old friend. And Marianne, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. I feel the same way about you, you know, although my website is Marianne 2020. Marianne 2020. Thank you very much. So tell us, A, I mean, I know you've been traveling the country. You've been in Iowa. You've been in a lot of other places. What are you hearing as you're traveling around the country? And B, how does that integrate with your campaign platform? What specifically are you running for president on? What are you campaigning on? Well, I've gone around the country talking about how very much we have swerved and deviated from the better angels of our nature, both governmentally and economically. And I certainly feel heard when I talk about that. I talk about the fact that short-term profit maximization for multinational corporations has not only our corrupt, co- corrupted our government, to make that our bottom line, has not only corrupted our, fun- our government, but has hijacked our value system that this has gone on to such an extent that basically we have reverted to an aristocratic system and that our generation has to do what other generations, not only other generations have done, but what our original founders had to do, which was decide, do you want to take a stand for democracy and repudiate aristocracy, or do you want to continue with an aristocratic situation? Because that's basically what has happened here. And I feel hurt, and I, I feel that my message that the traditional political conversation represents too narrow a container for the energies that we need to release at this time. If all you're talking about fixing is fixing things on the outside, if all we're talking about is incremental change, if all we're talking about is dealing with the pain but not really challenging the forces that cause all that pain, all we're doing is delaying the catastrophe and that it's time for a real uprising of consciousness that will lead to the kind of a fundamental repair that is needed. Yeah, I feel hurt and I feel energized and i feel glad that we're doing this that's great and uh, you feel heard h-e-a-r-d as in as yeah, in listened yeah. to right? <laughs> yeah so you want to run through some policy specifics as uh, have you developed the platform me. 
Sure, absolutely. It begins, of course, with the fact that an individual who doesn't care about other people is a sociopath. And so an economic system, the whole trickle-down canard in which fiduciary responsibility to stockholders is placed before any sense, uh, in fact, to the exclusion of any sense of moral or ethical responsibility to people and to planet, is a sociopathic economic system. Once people understand that, then we understand that it's a subtle form of tyranny which makes all of these other things what they are, beginning with the fact that we have millions of American children who are living in chronic trauma, Tom. There are millions of American children who go to school every day in schools that don't even have the minimum uh, safety standards on the buildings or the minimum school supplies necessary to teach a child to read. And if a child does not learn to read by the age of eight, the chances of their high school graduation is drastically diminished. The chances of their incarceration is drastically increased. I know you know all this. These uh, neurologists tell us that the PTSD that is experienced by these children is no less severe than the PTSD of a returning Afghan or Iraq vet. In fact, it's not post-traumatic in their case, it's present trauma because it's triggered and re-triggered every day. These children live in America's domestic war zones where the violence is so great on a daily basis in their homes and their families. They need, we need massive resources for these children, wraparound services, conflict resolution, um, restorative justice techniques, nutrition. These children are living in such chronic uh, trauma. We should be rescuing them from the poverty on every level that they're experiencing, no different than we would rescue American citizens from any form of natural disaster. But because these children have no, uh, have no, uh, they're not old enough to vote, so they don't represent a constituency. They're not old enough to work, so they have no financial leverage. And in a system such as ours, where the government acts practically like a system of legalized bribery, what possible a chance do these children have to compete with the clout of the corporate forces and their economic power in Washington? That's number one. We need a department and a whole cabinet-level department of childhood and youth. We need a completely massive realignment of our investments in the direction of children 10 years old and younger. I think that Americans... But 40 years is long enough for the jury to be in. Our economic system has proven it has nothing to do with planning for economic good 10 years from now. All it is is, is, is something which steals from the future for short-term profit in the present. So we need to have an economic system. If you want to plan for economic good 10 years from now, you take better care of your 10-year-olds today. We need to have, and for me, the whole idea of where financial abundance comes from is from unleashing the spirit of the American people. You know, we cap people's dreams, Tom, you know, starting with childhood. So there needs to be such an entirely different reframing um, of what it takes to create an abundant society 10 years from now, what what it would take to create a peaceful planet 10 or 20 years from now at a time and in a situation where, once again, you know, the, the head of the head of our uh, current head of the defense department was a 30-year executive at Boeing. Our defense strategy has nothing to do with peace creation, does it? It's all about preparedness for war, all about short-term profit maximization for people such as Boeing, and not all about. But when you look at what actually wages peace, expanding economic opportunities for women, expanding educational opportunities for children, ameliorating unnecessary suffering wherever possible because large groups of desperate people should be seen as a national security risk. This kind of shift into a robust partnership between defense, making sure we're prepared for war, we must 
have the best surgeon, if God forbid we have to have surgery, but we want to create health in the body and we want to create peace in the world. And that should happen not humanitarian and diplomatic uh, work part of the State Department, but also a U.S. Department of Peace. We are living, and I, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't already know or that your listeners don't already know, but we are living at a time where our behavior is literally imperiling not only the future of our democracy, but quite possibly the future of life on Earth. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's truly remarkable. We're talking with Marianne Williamson. You ran for Congress from California some years ago, and I'm sure you learned a lot from that campaign. Typically, that's what happens. What are you applying to this campaign for president right now out of that? Well, I'm the same person, but I know a little something about uh, political campaigns now, and I didn't then. Obama's first congressional campaign, he lost by 30 points. You can learn from failure. Lincoln, too. Success and, uh, yeah, well, so many times. Yeah. So hopefully I have learned, but I'm the same woman. It's not that I've gotten any better or worse, but the country sure has gotten worse. Yeah, tragically. Marianne Williamson, the website, Marianne2020.com. I have that right? You do. I do. Okay, Thank great. You, Tom. And you, Thank you, Marianne. Thank you so much, honey. And you can tweet her at M-A-R Williamson uh, is the Twitter handle as well. Check it out. Marianne Williamson running for president of the United States. Okay, let's check in with Bob Ney and find out what's going on in the world today. Uh, this report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, a new book by Ellen Ratner. And on the line with us is uh, the author of Sideswiped, former Congressman Bob Ney. Bob, what's up in the world today? Well, hi, Tom. Thank hey, you. Bob. Well, there's a few things going on. Uh, there's the story about the 737s that are being downed by the airlines themselves. So that's kind of a, an event affecting the world. Yeah, um, as a pilot. Basically, what happened, it seems, is that Boeing redesigned the 737 to make it bigger and carry more passengers, but they didn't want to call it a new airplane because then there would be a whole set of you know, new regulations and new training requirements and everything else. But because these engines were larger and they were forward of the wing where they used to be, they tended on climb out at full power to pull the nose up. So they built this automatic mechanism to push the nose down with these sensors, all new to this airplane. And the problem, in my mind, this is called the MCAS system. Mm -hmm. The problem with it is, as a pilot, this makes me crazy, that they overrode the ability of the pilot to pull the yoke back, to pull the nose back up. The software just ignores what the pilot is doing. And the pilot's like fighting with the plane, and you've got to reach down and turn off these two switches to disable the system. In other words, it's an opt-out system, and it should have been an opt-in system. Wow, it, you it, know so much about that. You've given me much more to go on this afternoon than I've been able to dig up. Yeah, well, I'm a pilot, and I've been reading the pilot message boards, and, and there's a bunch of freaked out pilots, I can tell you, because there's three different United States airlines that are using these, these uh, airplanes. Wow, that is terrible. Well, yeah. I'm sure that... And it was all, and it was all, you know, it looks like it was all about saving money. For, you know, money. on Boeing's part, they didn't want to call it a new model. And on the airline's part, they were happy to go along calling it the 737 oh. MAX. And that way they didn't have to pay for more training for their pilots. And, and the result has been a disaster. Two disasters now, apparently. Wow. that's terrible. As far as we know. Now, mm -hmm. keep in mind, this is my opinion. The, I am not... Oh, no the reporter here you are so anyhow what else is going uh, yeah, on i know but you've given me a lot of good information i appreciate that sure. i really do 
Um, speaking of the, of the big boys and money, um, presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren is looking at a trust-busting plan, and it's aimed at Silicon Valley mergers. Now, Silicon Valley, Tom, because I called and asked for some reaction, you know, uh, from some people around the Hill, and they said, well, Silicon Valley is ignoring it. it it's not going to happen. It's Elizabeth Warren, et cetera, et cetera, right. except... If, you know, uh, Donald Trump won a presidency, you don't know who's going to win the presidency. And if there were, you know, a takeover and there's 22 seats up in the Senate and you had a Democratic, you know, majority in the House, Senate, and the president, then this is something that even if it didn't go through, uh, the, the big Silicon Valley people, you know, the Facebooks of the world, mm-hmm. Apple, Walmart, et cetera, Google. people are involved in this. You know, Google, yes, would uh, would have to, I think, at least pay attention now, the president wouldn't be able to do it by, uh, you know, some type of executive order. But again, uh, it's something that, you know, technically could happen. And let's face it, something about Silicon Valley, have they not called things wrong in the past? Have they not had a, a tenure, as they say yeah. in the reports, when it comes to its consequences? Well, and the situation's gotten as bad as it has, because back in the 70s, there was a, a Supreme Court decision, I think it was GTE Sylvania, in which the Supreme Court adopted a policy that had been promoted for about 15 years by Robert Bork. This was before the disastrous nomination to put him on the court when he was still a respected jurist. And that that antitrust legislation should not look at the impact of trust on competition, on small businesses, on communities, any of those things that it was originally designed for, that it should only look at the impact of the price that the consumer pays. And that has been the standard that both the Justice Department and the Supreme Court have upheld since the mid-70s. And it's completely crazy, in my opinion. I'm writing a book on this, actually. And, How are you? And, and if that Supreme Court decision is not overturned or legislation is not passed that would render that Supreme Court decision moot, then Elizabeth Warren is going to have a challenge uh, doing the kind of antitrust, doing the kind of trust busting she wants. Um, so I'm guessing that she's hoping to pull some legislation together to go along with it. I would assume, and that's why you know she's coming out with this because uh, you know when people said, "Well, it's it's worthless for what she's doing," well, that's not actually accurate uh, because there's a lot of scenarios, and you're giving the court case example, and then also uh, you know depending on who is running the show in D.C., there could be a lot of different things that you know several balls up in the air. So I think she's yes. trying to you know just get the idea out there at least. Yep. Uh, I don't think it's just a campaign. Uh, event. I oh, no, this is something we need as a nation. We need this. Substantive idea out there. Yeah, yeah. Right. Small entrepreneurs uh, have been just squashed out of business. And now, even Correct. for, you know, if you're going to start a business, the business model is build it up to the point where you can sell it off to one of the giants before they squash you like a bug. The idea of, sure. you know, starting a, a family uh, hardware store and passing it down to your grandchildren is just dead. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, something else that's dead is the White House budget. It's dead upon arrival. Yeah. Arrives on Capitol Hill. Something of interest I noted in there is that the president stayed away from Social Security and Medicare. But he wants to cut a trillion dollars out of Medicaid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, over a decade. That's mind-boggling. Yep. Mm -hmm. Bob Nay, author Sideswiped. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Great talking with you. And thank you for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow. Don't forget democracy in particularly as fragile as it all is right now. Democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Look around. 
You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.